may be seated. Luke chapter 22 marks a significant turning point in the life of Jesus. All of his earthly ministry is over. At this point, his popularity is at an all-time high, and yet Jesus knows he's only a couple hours away from the most brutal death the world has ever known. And this morning, we're going to begin walking with Jesus down the road to the cross. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to first look at the story. We need to understand the story, what actually is happening in the story. There's a lot of uh, data from the gospel writers on the final hours of Jesus' life. So we need to understand what's happening in the story. And then we're going to look at the significance of the story. How does it apply to us? What does it teach us about Christ and following him? So let's start with the story. If you're taking notes, there are three movements in the story. First is the complicated problem that Jesus, he's nearing the end of his life, and he poses a complicated problem for the religious elites. Verse 2, the chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. Now, the chief priests and the scribes, they hated Jesus. They absolutely hated him. They hated him from the moment they met him. And they hated Jesus because he was threatening the religious system in almost every conceivable way. The religious elite, they had created this system that was designed to make them rich and give them a lot of influence. And Jesus was threatening that. In John chapter 11, verse 47, it says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the 70 most influential Jewish leaders in Israel. So they convened. They have this meeting. And they were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so Jesus was threatening the religious elites financially. He came in and he exposed how corrupt the temple system was, that these elites, they were getting rich off of the temple system, exploiting people. So Jesus threatened them uh, economically and theologically, that Jesus was exposing the man-made nature of the commands and traditions of the Pharisees, and he threatened them politically, uh, that he was threatening to take away their power because the, the religious elites, this, the Pharisees and the scribes, they had power because they had influence. And so as they were losing their influence, they were losing their, their political power. And so they decided Jesus must die. Jesus has to die. But it was complicated to kill Jesus because this was all happening during the Passover. This is what verse 1 says, that this was happening during the Passover. And the Passover was the largest Jewish celebration of the year. One scholar said, if you're trying to envision what the Passover might have been like, one scholar said it would be like combining the 4th of July, Easter, Christmas, and the Iowa State Fair. So if you're trying to build that image, there it is with Christmas mullets and everything else that would go along with it. It's this huge week-long event. And typically, there are around 400,000 people living in the city of Jerusalem. But during the Passover, the city would swell to roughly 2 million people. So it's just flooded with people. You're walking down the street and there are people everywhere that you look. And Jesus was the talk of the town. He was popular. Everyone was paying attention to him. He rode in on a donkey into Jerusalem as king, where there are tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people gathered, recognizing Jesus as the rightful king of Israel, the conqueror who would overthrow Rome. And so his popularity at this point is at an all-time high. Luke 19 says, every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests and scribes and leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him, but they could not find a way to do it. Have you ever had that experience before? where you're trying really hard to kill someone and you're just not able to do it. 
it's easy to read past this and not sense how crazy this is. I mean, they, this is wild. They, they, they're not just talking about how do we kind of make fun of them. They're, they're gathered plotting how to kill Jesus, but they can't do it. Why? Because all the people were captivated by what they heard. So Jesus has so much influence at this point. In our text, it says they were afraid of them. They were afraid of the people. They were afraid that if they arrested Jesus during the day, that the people would riot, and therefore everything would come crashing down. Mark 14, 1 and 2 says, It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. That's what they're terrified of. Because if there's a riot, then they're going to lose all their power and everything comes crashing down. And so Jesus is a complicated problem. So they have a meeting. They get all the, 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 the smartest people, the most religious people in Israel together to solve this problem. Which leads to the second movement, the satanic gathering. The satanic gathering. So the, the religious elites have gathered to answer one question, and here's the question. How do we kill Jesus without ruining everything? So they think Jesus is ruining everything for him, but how do we kill him without losing everything in the process? And if you put together the gospel record, you see that they come up with a, with a, a three easy step process. This is what they're gonna do. How do you kill Jesus without ruining everything? Step one, arrest Jesus at night during the festival. They can't let Jesus continue to gain influence during the festival. So we got to arrest him, but we got to do it at night during the festival. Step two, celebrate the festival. Act like you don't know where Jesus is at. Just uh, arrest him, hide him, and then celebrate the festival. Step three, kill Jesus after the festival. They kept saying, not during the festival. We're not going to kill him during the festival. Not during the festival. We can't kill him during the festival. And so in order for this plan to work... They have to arrest Jesus at night when he's away from people. But that's hard to do because at night he goes up into the Mount of Olives where there are thousands of people staying. And then during the day he comes into the temple and everyone surrounds him and he teaches. And then at night he goes up and then he goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And they can't go up into the Mount of Olives without, without creating uh, a lot of commotion and waking everybody up. And then there would be a riot that would start on the Mount of Olives. And so they need to get him secretly at night and they're stumped they don't know what to do how do you solve this problem well in walks judas so they're having this meeting and in walks judas verse three then satan entered judas called iscariot who was numbered among the twelve he went away and discussed with the chief priests and the temple police how he could hand him over to them and so they're, they're gathered together, they're working all the problems, working all the angles, trying to figure out how to do it, and here comes Judas Iscariot, possessed by the devil himself. And what is their response? Verse 5, they were glad. Here comes Judas, one of the 12 disciples, they're saying, you got to be kidding me, this is too good to be true. One of the 12 has walked into our meeting, offering to betray him. They were glad and agreed to give him silver. That's what Judas wanted. He wanted money. I mean, it's crazy what we will do for a little bit of money. Have you ever thought about that before? What people are willing to do for a little bit of money? I mean, we're not talking about billions of dollars. I mean, it's, it's never, it would never be appropriate for anyone to betray anybody for money. 
It would never be appropriate to betray Jesus for any amount of money. But if Judas was going to get like $100 billion, you're kind of like, oh, I mean, it's terrible, but maybe. But he doesn't even get very much money. He gets 30 pieces of silver. It's crazy what we'll do for a little bit of money. They were glad and agreed to give him silver. So he accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him to them when the crowd was not present. And so now betrayal is in the heart of Judas. And this is the ultimate betrayal. Arguably the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. This is what we're looking at it right here. The betrayal of Judas when he betrays Jesus unto death. And even if you're not a Christian, when you read the story, it is obvious that it is evil. That's why you've never met a person named Judas before, have you? Have you ever met a person named Judas? Never. I've never met a dog named Judas before. Now, I have met a bunch of cats named Judas for obvious reasons. <laughs> for obvious reasons. We don't even need to say them. But, but it's evil. It is absolutely evil what is happening here. Okay, so here's Jesus. Jesus is with the disciples. Judas has had this meeting with the religious elites. Betrayal is in his heart, and Judas comes back. Now, Jesus knows what's in Judas's heart. This explains verse 7. Then the day of unleavened bread came with the Passover lamb. When the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked. And then Jesus gives these cryptic instructions. Go into the town, find this guy. He's going to take you to a place and prepare the meal there. Now, I always have wondered, why? Why doesn't Jesus just say, hey, guys, we're going to Methuselah's house or whatever? You know the place, 1519 Moses Avenue. We've been there 20 times. It's exactly where we're going. Why, doesn't, why, does he, why is he cryptic about it? Why doesn't he explain where they are going, where they're going to celebrate the Passover? Well, the answer is that Jesus knows Judas is looking for a good opportunity to betray him. So if Judas knows in advance where they're going to be, he's going to betray him before Jesus is able to celebrate the Passover. So Jesus says, nope, not going to happen. So he, he gives this cryptic me message to Peter and John so that they're able to successfully prepare the Passover because you have to prepare it. But then Jesus takes the remaining disciples to meet up with Peter and John. So there is no opportunity for Judas to slip away and betray Jesus. And he does this because there's still one more really important accomplishment that Jesus needs before the cross. He needs to accomplish something before the cross. And what is that? Well, he has to establish communion. He has to give his bride, the church, communion. The ordinance of communion. Verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So he knows he's going to suffer, but he needs to establish communion before he dies, which leads to the third movement, which is the true Passover lamb. The true Passover lamb. For over a thousand years, the Jewish people, the people of God, had been celebrating the Passover. They, they remembered God's salvation, God's deliverance. How the Jewish people, they were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. They, they were helpless and they were hopeless and God raised up a deliverer, Moses, and sent him into Egypt. And Moses spoke on behalf of God saying, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Then come the 10 plagues and the final plague was the death of the firstborn. And God says, the final plague is that 
the firstborn in every household is going to die unless there's a substitute, unless there's a sacrifice, a lamb. And so the people of God, they gathered all these lambs and they sacrificed these lambs and they put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And when the angel of death came, he passed over that home so that 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 oldest son would not die. But any doorpost, any home that did not have the blood of the lamb, the oldest would die. And so God broke the back of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh agreed to let the Jewish people go, to let the nation of Israel go. And so for century after century after century after century, the people of God celebrated the Passover, remembering God's deliverance. And now Jesus is celebrating the Passover, but he says, hey guys, listen, the Passover, think about all the millions, the countless millions and billions of lambs that have been slain. He goes, all of those lambs point to me. It is impossible for the blood of lambs to take away sins. Those lambs, they never actually satisfied the wrath of God. All of those lambs were pointing to the ultimate, the true Lamb of God, and Jesus says, I'm here. I am the true Lamb of God that comes into the world to take away sins. And so he changes the Passover celebration into communion. And all week long, I I have not been able to get this scene out of my head. I mean, think about this scene. Jesus is in this room with his disciples. They're celebrating the Passover. And think about the emotional turmoil Jesus must have been going through as he establishes communion. You know, we take communion as a church every week. And it's, it's not very dramatic when we take communion. It's not dramatic. It's like we get the little cup and the little bread. And we remember the Lord. And it's important. It's really important. We're going to talk about it. It's important. And importance here in a minute. But it's, it's easy to think it's just this thing that you do. But remember, this first, this first communion was filled with turmoil. Just a few details to help you understand what's in Jesus's heart and mind as he establishes communion. First, Jesus knows he's going to die the worst death ever. He, he's just hours from the worst death ever. Verse 14 says, when the hour came, four words loaded with significance. When the hour came, what hour are you talking about here, Luke? It is the hour of his death. Up until this point, his hour had not yet come. So Jesus was totally invincible, and he knew he was invincible. John 7, verse 30 says, they tried to seize him. This is earlier in Jesus' ministry. They tried to get him. They hated him. They wanted to get their hands on him. They tried to seize him. Yet, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So he was protected by his Father in heaven. John 8, 20, he spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple, but no one seized him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And Jesus knew that his hour had not yet come. He knew that he was safe. You know, one time I went for a run and I was in, I was in the zone. I have, I had my headphones on. I'm running, running, running. And I go back uh, past the house and I hear a dog barking. And when you're running and you hear a dog, you got to locate that dog. Where's that dog at? And so I turn and I look and I see a dog maybe 40 yards, roughly, give or take, 40 yards away. And it's a large pit bull and it's sprinting at me and it's barking at me. And the first thought that came into my mind was, I've lived a nice life. You know, I've had a good life. 
but it's probably going to be over here. I have a good life insurance policy. I'm going to be okay. My family will be okay. I'm going to go to heaven. But I thought it's over. Like, I, this, it's coming at me. This is going to be a, a giant mess. And then I'm thinking, okay, I got to get away. So I turn and I look, and the street's right here to my left. But it's just, there are cars everywhere. And I'm like, that's not a good option. Pitbull, not a good option. So I'm just running. I just start sprinting, trying to get away, looking at the dog. And the dog's coming, gaining ground, maybe 20 yards away. And then all of a sudden, I hear a buzz. Bzzz. And then I'm like, what's going on? And then the dog falls down and starts convulsing. And then I realized it was an electric fence. The dog was in an electric fence, and I thought, praise God for electric fences. Praise God. Saved my life. And, and, and when I realized what was going on, I went from, like, terrified. My heart is beating out of my chest. I'm, this is going to be terrible to this is not a big deal. I'm totally safe. Like I wanted to go over to the dog, start taunting the dog because I knew where the line was. <laughs> you got nothing on me, pit bull. You know, that, that uh, probably is not smart to do. But I felt I, like in one moment, it, I went from terrified to I'm okay, totally okay. And I think that's how Jesus lived his life. Like he knew where the line was. He knew that his father had put protection around him so that all the evil of sinful men, all the evil of the devil couldn't get him. He knew it. Why? Because he said, my hour has not yet come. But when we get to verse 14, it says, when the hour came. When the hour came. It means that Jesus knew the leash was off. The electric fence is turned off and they're coming for him, that he would receive no more protection from his father. And so this is how he describes the hour in Luke twenty-two fifty-three. Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you didn't lay a hand on me. Why? Because my hour had not yet, yet come. He says, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. He knew he was going to experience the greatest onslaught of evil the world has ever known, that his father would no longer protect him. He knew he was going to suffer horribly, and that understanding troubled his soul. John 12, 27 says, now my soul is troubled. What should I say, Father? Save me from this hour? But that's why I came to this hour. He goes, I came into the world for this hour. And now that it has come, what should I say? I, I don't want this. Is that what I'm supposed to do? He goes, no, I, I came into the world to suffer. I came into the world to die. Nevertheless, Jesus is troubled by it. So Jesus knows he's going to die the worst death ever. Secondly, Jesus knows Judas is going to betray him. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. Verse 21. Verse 21, but look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. So here's the, here's the environment. He's, he's celebrating the Passover. He's turning Passover into communion. He's sitting with his disciples. He knows he's going to die. And here's Judas right there. It has demonic, satanic fingerprints all over it. And he knows that a volcano of betrayal is erupting in Judas's heart, and yet Judas sits there straight-faced. Oh, Jesus, not me. I would never betray you. To I'm totally loyal. I'm totally loyal. And so he knows that the devil has put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. Third, Jesus knows that his, dis his disciples have no idea what's going on. 
He knows that his disciples are totally ignorant. They're totally oblivious to what is going on. And sometimes when you're going through a really tough time, just having friends with you, they don't even have to say anything, but if they just understand what's going on, it's just helpful. It's helpful to walk through life with people, and they don't, even, they don't have to have all the answers, but as long as they have some idea of what's going on, they can comfort your heart. But Jesus' best friends, his disciples, have no idea what's going on. He's told them like 10 times, and they're totally oblivious. Look at verse 21. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So Jesus says, hey, one of you guys, you're going to betray me. What's their response? So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. So they're like, I think it's you, Matthew, you tax collector. And he's like, no, it's not me, it's you. And they're going back and forth. Saying, no, it's not me, it's you. It's, no, it's going to be you. They're arguing. And then they're like, while we're on the topic, then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. <laughs> You're the worst, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. They're just going back and forth. I love Jesus' response to them in verse 25. Then Jesus said to them, you guys are idiots, the worst friends ever. <laughs> it's the Dan Rude translation, that's what I would have said. He's like, what do you, <laughs> just think about Jesus. Sit in Jesus' seat for a moment. Your closest friends, bickering over who's the greatest and who's the worst in his hour of distress. And yet what I love about the Lord, John 13 says, that he loved those men to the end. I love that. He lo- even, even, in their, even in their foolishness and ignorance, the Lord Jesus loved them to the end. Do you know if you're a Christian, the Lord will love you to the end. He will love you to the end. It's a beautiful thing. And so this is the story. This is the story that we see Jesus is beginning to go down the road to the cross. The betrayal is beginning to happen. Jesus changes Passover into communion. Now, what are we supposed to learn from this? Well, there are many truths to learn. I want to highlight a couple. First, the sovereignty of God is good news. The sovereignty of God is good news. All of the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign. And this passage demonstrates the sovereignty of God over all things. To be sovereign is to possess supreme or ultimate power. So so when we say that God is sovereign, we are saying that God is in control of everyone and everything, that he is in charge of the universe. Every detail in the universe, he is over and in control of, including your life. This means that no one can overpower God. There's no situation that can surprise God. There's no government that can overrule God. There's no power that can alter the plan of God. There's not one molecule in all of the universe outside of the sovereign control of God. Sometimes people think about the devil as God's equal, and we don't say it like that because that sounds weird, but that's kind of how we think about it, that God is really 
good and really powerful and the devil is really evil and really powerful and they're fighting back and forth and usually God is winning but sometimes the devil wins. That's the story that can be in our minds. But remember, the devil is a created being and the devil himself is as threatening to God as one match is to the ocean. He is no threat at all in any way. He's infinitely higher than the devil, infinitely more powerful, infinitely more wise and in control. And I hope that the sovereignty of God sounds like good news to your soul. And I'm going to give you two reasons it should be good news for our souls. First, the sovereignty of God means evil will never triumph in the lives of Christians. It means evil will never triumph in the lives of Christians. If you are born again, you are possessed by the Spirit of God, you've been made new, the heart of stone has been taken from you, you have a new heart. If you are a Christian, evil will never triumph in your life. On the surface of this passage, when you read Luke 22, it appears that Judas and Satan and evil are defeating Christ. It appears that the train has come off the tracks that Jesus is losing control of the situation. But please understand this. The cross was never plan B for Jesus. Even though it looks like this horrific, terrible event, which it is, the cross was never plan B. The cross is not God making the best of a bad situation. That's not what's happening at the cross. Rather, the cross is the eternal plan of God to give eternal life to the world. And because God is sovereign, he uses all of the evil aimed at Christ to accomplish his purposes, namely the glory of God and the salvation of the world. I mean, think about all of the evil, all of the evil of the devil, all of the evil, evil of sinful men. I mean, just think about the wickedness of the human heart and how it's aimed at Christ, the Sanhedrin, these men dressed from head to toe in religious gear, pretending to worship God, yet they're plotting the death of Jesus. Think about the Roman Empire and Pontius Pilate, all of the evil aimed at Christ, and yet all the evil in the world cannot alter the plan of God one single millimeter. Not one single millimeter. It cannot alter the plan of God. Why? Because God is in charge. Do you believe that? That he is in charge. And his will will prevail. And he will use all the evil of sin, the sin of the world, to accomplish his purposes. And so what that means in your life, when life is unfolding in a way you don't want it to unfold, you're like, this is not part of the plan. I, don't, I can't make any sense out of this. This seems so depressing. It seems so difficult. And when your soul is in turmoil, you can remember, okay, God rules and reigns over all things. And just because you can't see how it's gonna work out, it doesn't mean that God is not in control. So it should be good news that God is God, that he's in charge. Secondly, another reason why it should be good news is that the sovereignty of God is the foundation of our courage in life. The sovereignty of God is the foundation of our courage in life. How do you face life with courage? How are you not a coward? How are you not a coward? How do you face life with courage? It's easy to be confident when life is going your way, 
But how do you stand when everything around you is falling down? How do you keep trusting God? How do you keep obeying God when evil is being done to you? When life is painful, when you don't get the job that you want, when you don't get the girl that you want, you don't get the guy that you want, you lose your job, you lose your health, your kids get sick, a child dies, a spouse dies, ministry doesn't go the way you want it to go, how do you keep trusting God? Because many people, they throw in the towel, they're done. I can't make sense of it, therefore it's meaningless, purposeless, I'm done. How do you keep obeying God in the face of pain and disappointment and suffering? Well, the answer is the sovereignty of God. The the sovereignty of God is the foundation on which we stand. It is the way that we move forward with courage because we, we, we understand what David understood, Psalm 62. I am at rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I will never be shaken. And see, when we build our lives on something besides God, something besides the gospel of grace, that foundation will be shaken and it will collapse. But when our feet stand firm on the gospel of grace, and we build our lives on a big, glorious, sovereign God, that foundation will endure. It can endure everything. And so Christ is to be the rock underneath our feet if we are to endure. And see, ultimately, the sovereignty of God means that God uses everyone and everything for your good, if you're a Christian, for your good and for his glory. And there will be times when the the doctrine of the sovereignty of God will be challenged in our souls where we wonder, okay, God, is this, are you really in charge? The plane is spiraling out of control. Consider Christ for a moment. Just try to sit at that meal with the Lord. And you're like, wait a second. All the powers that be are coming after me. My friend is betraying me. All my friends are gonna desert me and I'm gonna die. How is God in control? There will be times where you feel like the ground all around you is shaking. There will be times when your heart is trembling with fear. And that is when we must remember that our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. That he is in charge of all things. And the same Jesus that we're gonna watch suffer is the same Jesus who promises to be with us in our suffering. And he promises that every pain and sorrow and evil done to you, every trial, every disappointment, will abound to the glory of God in your highest good in Christ. He promises that there's no meaningless suffering. There's no meaningless suffering in the Christian life. Why? Because he's sovereign. He is in charge. And he works all things together for the good of those who love him. All week long, I've been thinking about Isaiah 49. This is what it says. Verse 14, Zion says, the people of God, this is what they say in Isaiah 49. The Lord has abandoned me. The Lord has forgotten me. This is what trials do. 
This is what challenges do. It makes you think God has forgotten you, that God has abandoned you. But how does the Lord respond when the people of God say, God, you've abandoned me? Look what, look what the Lord says. I love, this, I love this image. Verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? I mean, what a picture. Does a mom ever say while nursing her child, oh, who are you? How did you get here? Get away from me, weird baby. Like, who? Get, get away. Does that ever happen? Never happens. Never happens. And this is what the Lord says, even if these forget, even if you can find a mom that forgets about her baby, yet I will not forget you. Look, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. He says, I will not forget you. And because of the gospel of grace, because of what Christ has done for us, he will never abandon us. That's why he died. He died on the cross for our sins that we might be forgiven, that we might be made new, that we might be reconciled to God, that we might never be abandoned. So even as we walk through difficulty, the Lord reigns. He's in charge. And he loves us and he walks with us in our difficulty. And so when you walk through trials, you will suffer in life. You will. And when you walk through pain and you don't know what's going on, I hope you don't just see chaos and sin, I hope behind all of that, you see a big, glorious, sovereign God who is working all things together for your good. That doesn't mean the pain is not real. Jesus was troubled, deeply troubled by it. It just means we have reason for hope. We have reasons to trust God in our difficulty. So the first the first lesson that we learn is that God is sovereign. The second lesson we learn is that communion is important. Communion is important. Now, I could give you 30 reasons communion is important, but I'm going to give you three from the text. And if you go outside the text, you can come up with 100. We're going to try to stay in the text. And there are probably 10 reasons in the text, but we only have time for three. Why is it important? First, communion fulfills and replaces the Passover celebration. What is communion? We're going to take communion here in a moment. What is it? Well, it is the fulfillment and replacement of the Passover celebration. So for a thousand plus years, the Jewish people celebrated communion, remembering God's deliverance, his salvation from Egypt through the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And Jesus says, all, all of those lambs that have died have not taken away one sin. They haven't paid for one sin. All of those lambs have simply pointed to me and I'm here, and now I want you to celebrate communion. I don't want you looking to all these lambs anymore. I want you to be looking to me. The second reason it's important is because communion is rehearsing and remembering Jesus in the gospel. Like, what are we going to do in communion here in just a couple minutes? What are we doing? We're actually rehearsing the gospel we are remembering the gospel. Look at verse 19. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so he says, listen, guys, we're gonna, we are going to rehearse the gospel, that the bread is my body, and the cup is my blood. 
And when the people of God get together, when the people of God get together, he says, I want you to do something. It's good to see each other. Amen. Isn't it good to see each other? Give each other high fives. It's good. It's good. It's good to be together. It's good to pray together. But this is what the Lord says. When you come together, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember me. And the elements, the bread and the cup are designed to help you zero your focus in on Jesus Christ, on him. That's the point, that we would remember him. And something that I have observed in my life, and I have, I've had many conversations with people, it's, it's that we can, as Christians, we can just go on autopilot. And this is particularly challenging when you have kids. Because you have these little cute things that you love so much and they're, they're, they're always asking things of you and you take them to church and it's a beautiful thing and that's what you should do. But you can get so distracted. I, I've talked to so many people. They'll say, Dan, I go to church, but I don't really go to church. I go to church and I sing, but I'm not singing. I, I'm... I, I'm Sitting in the message, I'm listening to the word of God, but I'm not listening to the word of God. When I take communion, I'm taking communion, but I'm not taking communion. And people can get into this rhythm where they go to church, but they don't go to church. They go to church, but they don't commune with God. But see, the Lord Jesus Christ, he tells us, he says, guys, listen, when you come together, remember me. Do you know why marriages are so dysfunctional? Do you know why they're so dysfunctional? It's because one spouse or both spouses do not have Christ at the center. They have something else. If something else, maybe it's your job, your kids, maybe it's your hobbies, maybe it's the sin that you're hiding, I don't know what it is, but something else is in the center. And so when you are off center, everything goes haywire over time. It's just a matter of time. And so the Lord says, listen, the Christian life is designed to be lived with Christ at the center. So when you go to your work, Christ is to be at the center. In your home, he's to be at the center. And so there's this rhythm of the people of God gathering together, taking communion together as a body of the redeemed people of God. And what we do is we put Christ in the center. We focus our eyes on him. We commune with him. And I think if we can, as a church, if we can just get communion right, it doesn't solve all of our problems, that's not what I'm saying, but if we can just get communion right, I think it will be a tremendous blessing for us. A tremendous blessing just to refocus our eyes on the Lord. The third reason communion is important is because communion anticipates heaven. It anticipates heaven. Verse 18, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so Jesus, he's like, okay, here's the Passover, but here's the deal. Passover points to me, points to me. And he says, I'm not going to drink this until the kingdom of God comes. And so this anticipates a day when all the redeemed throughout all the generations from every tribe and tongue and nation and language will gather around the Lord Jesus Christ and we will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19. Let us rejoice and exalt and give, give him the glory 
For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so communion itself is just focusing our eyes on Christ, remembering that the Lord Jesus, he died for you. Do you, do you understand that? Like the God of the universe became a man and died in your place for your sins so you don't go to hell. You belong. If you got what you deserve, you'd go to hell suffering rightly for your sins. And Christ shed his blood for your forgiveness that you might be reconciled to God. But being saved, born again in this life is marvelous. It needs to happen. But he didn't just save us for this life. He saved us for the next. He saved us that we might live in his presence forever. And so communion has this present right now focused attention benefit, no doubt, where our eyes go immediately to Christ. His body was broken. His blood was shed that we might be forgiven. And it focuses our eyes on the day when we see him. And if we would just put our eyes on the Lord now, commune with the Lord now, and if we would put our eyes on the day when we'll be with him, when we're gathered with the people of God at the table, that's gonna be a big table. I don't know how that works exactly. But people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language celebrating the salvation of God. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. So we're about ready to take communion. Typically, someone else comes out and they talk about communion, but that would seem a little bit redundant at this point, so we're not going to do that. But I just want to encourage you, I really want to encourage you to take communion, to be serious about it. And there are some instructions in the Word of God about communion, so real quick, I'm going to give you some of those instructions. First, if you are walking, okay, communion is for Christians. Communion is not, it's not for religious people. Communion is not for people who go to church. Communion is for Christians. The redeemed people of God who put their trust in Christ alone for, this, for their salvation, for their eternal life. And so, if you're not a Christian, don't take communion. If you're not a Christian, you should become a Christian. You should put your faith in Christ for your salvation. Now, if you're a Christian, you claim to be a Christian, you put your trust in Christ, but you are consciously, knowingly living in sin and you're not going to repent. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? You're consciously and knowingly living in sin and you, you, you're not broken over it, you're not gonna change it. You should not take communion. How can we who died to sin continue in it any longer? It's a dishonor to Christ. How can we celebrate and remember the Lord while dishonoring him with our lives? Typically, this will come in the form of sexual sin. Typically, typically this is going to come in the form of a, of a young man and a young woman or an old man and an old woman who are not married having sex outside of marriage. But see, a perpetual habit of sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage, is a demonstration that your profession of faith is fake. It's not real. And therefore, you should not dishonor the Lord by taking communion. 
Now, in your heart, if you're like, oh, man, I know I sin and I fail, but you're repentant and you're humble and you want to change, and even if you struggle, but you're repentant and you're humble, do you want to change? This is what communion is for. You just come to the Lord and you just say, Lord, thank you for loving me. So I don't want to paint this picture like you've got to have your act together perfectly to take communion. That's not it. But do you, are you worshiping Christ? Do you love him? Are you following him? And even if you fail, you just come to the Lord to say, Lord, I'm sorry, and thank you that you died for me. Thank you for loving a wretch like me. If you're bitter, like wives, if you're bitter towards your husband, and you're not gonna, you're not gonna change, don't take communion. How can we who have been forgiven so much hold on to other people's sins? You can't, it's incompatible with the gospel. Husbands, if you're bitter towards your wife, you need to repent of that. This is a good opportunity to just humble yourself. The Lord wants us, if we're going to take the Lord seriously, we need to take one another seriously. And so this is a beautiful time just to commune with Christ and to love Christ, to humble ourselves, thank him for what he's done. And uh, I hope that, that this time as a church will, be, will grow healthier and healthier. As, as we move forward. It's just healthier and healthier where we, where we commune with Christ. And so I'm going to pray, and then we have cups. Uh, we have a little, little cup and the bread, and I hope you take a minute to commune with the Lord. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for our salvation. Uh, Lord, we think about the, the psalm that says, if you kept a record of sins, Oh, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. It is an awesome thing to be forgiven. And I pray we would not trivialize that. I pray we wouldn't underestimate the value of being forgiven, of being reconciled. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to die for us. That you were willing to go through the greatest horror any person has ever experienced. And you did it because you love us. You did it because you want your name to be glorified. And I just, I pray, Lord, that this would be a sweet, just the next couple of minutes would just be a sweet time of communion. I, I pray if there's sin that we're holding on to, that, that we cherish over you, I pray this would be a time of repentance. Pray, Lord, if there's some bitter hearts, some bitter wives in here, that by the power of your spirit, they would put an end to that. If there are bitter husbands in here, they would put an end to that. They would forgive from the heart. They would remember how you've dealt with them graciously. I pray if there's uh, sexual sin here, Lord, I pray that we would resolve by your grace to put to death whatever remains in our flesh. And Lord, we know you died. You died for that sin. Help us not to live in it, we pray. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.